Hey, welcome to another episode of Speaking Duck on the Never Sleeps Network. I'm your host, Alex Ross. In this episode, we speak to Toronto bartending and restaurant Jane of All Trades, Asia Sachs. Asia is a great representation of a well-versed and experienced manager, server, and bartender. Her positive attitude in general makes her a great role model, and that's why we had such a pleasure having her on the show. This is a great episode for those who are just starting in the food industry or wondering what's the next step in their career. Asia is currently serving at Taverna Mercato at 120 Bremner Boulevard, a prominent Italian local chain of restos in Toronto. Her experience includes the Rivoli, Chosky, Calendar, Miller Tavern, the County General, the Emerson. Would you believe that she came all the way from Venice, California to our great city? She is full of great vibes, and I'm happy to introduce Asia Sachs on this episode of Speaking Duck. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for Where having me. Where are you coming me. from? My pleasure. Uh, yoga class. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to your yoga guri. Guri, what are you calling? Yeah, Yogi? I go. I was actually around the corner. I live really close to here. This was very convenient. Oh, great. Yeah. I wish all my guests were uh, close by, but you don't work close by. No, I work on Bremner. So the name of the place you're currently working is? Mercado, Taverna Mercado. And when did you start there? Uh, in January. And what's the drink program like there? Uh, it's great. I actually consulted on the current cocktail list, but I'm not bartending there. I'm actually just serving. Is that a big change for you? It is. I mean, even as when I was managing for the last few years, I was on the floor as well. So not a huge change in terms of my skill set, but not being the boss is a bit of a change for right now. What are the biggest changes then? I work a lot less. <laughs> That's great. It is Food great. and beverage is a tough industry to not work 15-hour days. Yeah, I mean, I was working between 55 and 75 hours a week for the last three or so, four years. And were you making the kind of money that someone that could work in an office for 40 hours a week was making? Probably. I think so. Like, I mean, I don't really know. I've never worked in an office. I think probably... I mean, management is notorious for a lot of work for less money, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You're learning skills and stuff, but servers and bartenders tend to make more than the management, just sort of a known fact. A fact because of tips? Tips are a huge part of it. There are places I've worked where I was also part of the tip pool, and that made it a little bit easier financially, but salary is certainly that of a very entry-level position in an office, I would say. Okay, for those of us who are not in the industry, mm -hmm. can you explain kind of that breakdown? How much, on average, does your server get paid? How much, on average, are they taking home in tips? So, for those that don't know these facts, um, server minimum wage is actually less than minimum wage. Minimum wage, I believe, is, I think, ten fifty-five right now, about that, or ten ninety-five, something like that. Server minimum wage is nine fifty-five. It's a lower starting pay because they're expecting you to make tips, obviously. They're taking that into consideration. Um, if you're in management, generally, you work from a salary perspective. There are certainly places that still do hourly, but obviously, with the hours that are expected of management, that doesn't always work out. So it tends to be that most places do salary. And how much am I expecting a tip for a server for the entire night? How much are they making just in tips alone? Well, that really depends on the place and the shift. I've had shifts where I make 50 and I have shifts where I make 250. It very much depends on not necessarily even just the night of the week. That does have a part in it. Depends on the establishment you're in, busy it is, um, what the tip pool is, like what the tip share is, whether you're pooling tips or it's your own tips. Let's There's get so into many that. factors. Let's get into that. The, okay. the, the tip pool. 
Yes. So smaller restaurants tend to do that. And certainly if you're working behind a bar, you're sharing with all your bartenders because it's impossible to figure out what tips you've made and what tips they've made. That's that's a given. But um, smaller restaurants tend to work. I shouldn't even say smaller restaurants because restaurants like Splendido do this as well. They pool all their tips and then it works from a point system. But I'm more familiar with a smaller restaurant, in which case everyone's pooling their tips and then it's broken down by how many hours you've worked, regardless of your position. If I'm working in a smaller restaurant and I'm putting into a tip pool, should I assume that the chef is also getting some of that? The hostess is also getting some of that? That's a tip out. So that's a different thing. Okay. So now we so, need more explanation. Yeah. Um, it's complicated, I guess. I didn't really, I don't really think about it because it's all I know, but it is a little complicated. Um, generally, you can expect a tip out at a restaurant between 2 and 6%, depending on the restaurant and what your support system is like. A larger restaurant like I work at, you have, you're tipping out uh, your bartenders because, again, it's not tip pool. It's You each get your own tips. Um, you're tipping out the bartender, the bussers, the food runners, and the host. Not the kitchen. Smaller restaurants tend to tip out the kitchen, um, not management, the kitchen. And sometimes there's management getting tip outs as well. If they're not part of the tip pool, they'll certainly get part of the tip share. But that's very different than the house getting tip outs, which people don't really do anymore. It sounds like there's a lot of politics about who there gets what, there can who be. deserves what. There doesn't need to be, but I think there naturally is. I mean, there's politics in any field. And unfortunately, yes, a lot of what we do does center around money simply because it is constantly a transaction. Everything we do is a transaction. And because we're making so little by the hour, we're completely reliant on the kindness of strangers and the volume of the restaurant we're working in to pay our bills. And how do you prefer to tip? Out or tip pool? Environment I'm in, I'm, I'm enjoying being responsible for my own income, um, is the best way to put it, I suppose. Because it's a large restaurant, we have our sections and our shifts and you know, you get cut at different stages. So like, you know, there's nights I can go in at four and leave at nine. Well, I'm not going to make the most money that night, but I then have the rest of my evening. So I make those choices based on that. The plus side to a tip pool system is that everyone tends to help each other out a little bit more. There's more of a teamwork aspect to it. I think you're, you're right in saying that there are politics attached to that that come along with that for sure. I can understand that a server's on the front line, but if a server's not putting out pristine food or maybe the server is taking a drink from a bartender, you know, it's hard to sometimes separate your server from your bartender, from your chef, and, you know, who is really the result of your ultimate tip. <laughs> That's certainly a common conversation. Again, it depends on the establishment. I think, you know, I had dinner recently at Allo, which is a tasting menu restaurant. I've heard only the best things. In that case, I don't think, I don't know what the tip out structure is there, but um, I do would say that obviously the kitchen is a massive part in your experience as a guest. Um, there's no question. Obviously, you're essentially there for the food. Um, mind you, they have an incredible bar program and the bartenders are great friends of mine and incredibly talented. So there is that aspect to it, but they do separate the two a bit in the sense that the front area doesn't do the t tasting menu. They have like a snack menu, but the food's a huge part of it. And hopefully the hu food is a huge part of every time you go to a restaurant. Well, let's talk about Mercato. Yes. So that's at 120 Bremner Boulevard Suite 100 and it's Taverna Mercato. So right. I'm guessing Italian. Well, they're all Italian restaurants. It's a it's a chain, but it's it's a relatively independently owned chain. It's two brothers that started the business over 10 years ago. So it is corporate to a point, but I think only in terms of organization and resources as opposed to actual attitude. It's still very much a family restaurant in a sense, which is part of why I enjoy it. And we'll uh, touch on that. We'll touch on the difference between uh, maybe a corporate run restaurant and a restaurant that's independently run. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can 
shed some light on the differences? Sure. I've done both a lot. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I mean, your bio is incredible. <laughs> like, we're, we're not even touching that part yet because I still want to know about Mercado and where you are right now. Yeah. Well, it was a choice I made. I mean, I was certainly pushed. The last management job I had didn't work out for several reasons. Um, and really, it was a blessing in disguise. The owner made a difficult choice, but it made sense for me. And I was pretty visibly unhappy. And I was done managing for a little while. There's aspects, and we can talk about that, that I'm, I love about management. But I was forgetting the things I actually love about this industry as a result, because I was answering emails instead of you know, getting to get down to the part of which I love, which again is the food and the drink and the guest experience, which is funny because if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would have only said the money, but a lot changes the longer you're in it. Part of what I'm writing about for Swallow is just discussing like as you age, what your perspective, how your perspective changes in the industry, um, what your priorities shift into. So Mercado was a great choice because I knew um, the GM previously. We discussed another position for me previously to somewhere else he was working. So when I left the last job, I decided I really needed a break from the 60-hour work weeks and working six days a week, 10 hours a day. So luckily for me, there was still a position open for server, and that was kind of what I wanted to do anyway. It just made a lot of sense, and I'm really enjoying it. And what do you see now that you're in a corporate environment? And listen, we don't have to blacklist this as a corporate environment. I just think when you're in a metropolitan city like Toronto, there's Mm going to be independent restaurants, there's going to be family run and corporate and sometimes a combination of both. I think this is a combination. I think that's how I would describe it. I mean, I have no idea, obviously, of the back end in terms of like how many investors they have or anything that's none of my business. Dom and Jack, who are the brothers that are the owners, they're visible, they're present, they're involved, which is unique in a corporate situation. All five of the locations, there are five in the city, have commonalities in terms of the menu. It's one executive chef, but they also have their unique differences. They call it Taverna Mercado. They wanted it to be a little more bar focused, which the bar is quite prominent in the restaurant. Um, And where it's located, they wanted it to still sort of have the combination of the sort of Toronto Street and Bay Street locations are a little more fine dining. So this is a little more casual, but not as much as, say, the Trat location, Trattoria location in the Eaton Center. Sort of a hybrid. And because of where we're located, we wanted to be accessible to both the businesses around there for the 5 o'clock kind of sink a set, but also the families going to Ripley's Aquarium and dad and son going to the hockey game. And it's really meant to be a bit of a broader audience. Tell us more about the environment of the neighborhood. Well, it's unique in the sense that it's all pretty new. Like, I mean, I remember going down to see a baseball game or a hockey game or even a concert for that matter, and there not being much out there. Like, Bremner itself uh, is only recently built up the way it has been. Um, It was fallow ground for a while, being on the train tracks. So all the buildings are new. There are a few restaurants around, but other than up on, like, Restaurant Row, which is like King and John, right? The, the, like, infamous Restaurant Row, which is still has its place in the city and will always be what it is. It was like there was 11 Aria and like real sports. And that was kind of it. Yeah. Even still, you know, you maybe have a couple wing places, a subway, hoops, you know, like uh, a sushi place, maybe. Well, now there's the Delta. So they have their own restaurant there as well. So they have their own little niche market there too. But definitely, I mean, Dom and Jack were brilliant in choosing this location. I don't know how they came around to it, but it was a very smart choice. And And it's a really diverse clientele, which is something that was very interesting to me because I've been, well, I've worked on Queen West almost exclusively (laughs) over the last certainly 10 years and if not longer. So it was interesting to me to have a different clientele than I've had in the past. Well, diversity in Toronto 
kind of means popularity in a lot of ways. The more diverse people that are attending your place, that means the more people in general are coming to Toronto, uh, to your location. Because Toronto is such a diverse city, I feel like all the different little metropolitan and all the multicultural kind of staples you have, you know, like you said, the father-son Mm-hmm. to the business crew, to just people that are from out of town that need a bar close by. Absolutely. You can appease everybody. Well, I think the only other place I've worked that really had that diverse clientele was the Drake Hotel, sort of a West End version of that clientele because you got the hotel guests, you had people that read about you in various magazines, and obviously the Drake is now world-renowned and has been for years. So that was an incredibly diverse crowd, especially depending on the shift you're working. Like on a Friday night, it's almost a club, or is a club, I should say. But on a Tuesday, you've got a lot of regulars and, and locals and, and artists. And so it was a very diverse clientele there as well, which was really nice. And on Mondays, you have Ivy Nights, 86. I, exactly, which was, a, and that's very predominantly back of house with some really great front of house support. And that's certainly how I've met a lot of people in the industry is through her nights there, because I used to actually work those nights. Did you meet Ivy through the Drake? Yeah, she was actually still working in the kitchen Amazing. when I started there. <laughs> so I used to serve her bottles of 50. Her staff drank. She gave me a drink ticket, and I gave her a bottle of 50. Actually, it was uh, Bud Light. It was not 50 for her. It was Bud 50 Light. 50 wasn't cool then? That then you're, you're really cool, dating yourself. A, okay. No, but she's okay. a Bud Light girl. Ask her. I mean, she stopped drinking the Bud Light a couple years ago, but... She was exclusively a Bud Light girl. Well, the reason I bring Ivy up, uh, that's the reason why we're connecting today. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Swallow earlier. And that's Ivy Knight's um, publication online, SwallowDaily.com. And she is now a family member of the Speaking Duck community because she's just introducing us to so many great people to have on this podcast. She's great for that. She's unbelievable. She knows everybody. And she seemed <laughs> to have the best time when I was interviewing her because I, she's a little bit of an idol of mine being a food journalist in the city. You know, I've been reading her zines that she mm-hmm. was putting out years and years ago and all the Vice stuff. Mm-hmm. Now that she's doing something similar to what we're doing here at the Never Sleeps Network, her own publication, it's nice that we kind of collaborated and now I get to talk to all her amazing friends and Oh, my God. She sent an email out to, like, everybody she knows. And that's to me, is a sign of, okay, she really must have enjoyed having a chat with me. But everybody has responded. That's great. Everybody has responded. Well, she knows reliable and passionate people. No, you nailed it. Reliable. Yeah. This industry is a tough industry to find reliable people, especially in Toronto, where we're oversaturated with bars and restaurants. It's hard to find good service. Even you were recently posting about looking for servers. Yes. You know, it's, it's easy to find somebody who's willing to come out of university with no experience and say, I need a part-time job, but more and more serving in the food and beverage industry has become such a prominent industry in the city. It's where people are finding their jobs, even before school. Agreed. And I do think that there's an unfortunate thing where because of the level of service that the city has come to expect, which is great, we need to get back to training people. We need to get back to teaching and molding people. Like, good. I thought you were going to say we need more dive bars. No. Well, <laughs> less training. I'll never more say dive less bars. dive bars. I love dive bars. I live next to one of my favorite ones. I was discussing this with one of my bosses at Mercado, where you just, you know, we're so used to being uh, blessed with a lot of very incredible talent in the city, but the reality is there's more restaurants than bar stars, quote unquote. So it 
you have to get back to the basics and teaching people and bringing people from bussers to servers and from barbacks to bartenders, which we used to do. There are certain people that get that bridge, but a lot of people just expect people to walk in and know what they're doing and have their wine knowledge and know how to make an old fashioned. And that's just not how it works. So how would you recommend someone maybe fresh out of school or looking for a part-time gig? Do they learn in-house? Do they start from the bottom and work their way up? Or do they go to a course? Courses, I mean, I've never hired someone because they took a bartending course. That was That's just the reality of it. I think that they have their place. And if that's something you're interested in, then I would never say don't do it. But I don't think that's going to get you a job necessarily. I think starting from the bottom for sure. Starting in big corporate restaurants is always a great way to start. Unfortunately, that is just the reality. If you start hosting at a Milestones and then they promote you to a server – it, that is one of the ways in that's a little bit speedier than coming in as a server assistant at Lee, let's say, right? Where maybe you're food running for a year before they even like talk to you about serving a table. I think bigger restaurants, it's easier to move up a little bit faster sometimes. Like I wouldn't suggest someone turning 20 to necessarily go to like one of the top five restaurants in the city, walk in and expect a serving job. That's just not going to happen. Certainly. Yeah. You're going to have to pay your dues. We all did. Like, well, let's you know talk about yours. Yeah. Let's, let's hear it. <laughs> I want to hear about the dues you paid. Uh, well, I was really lucky. I mean, I've just said all that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I worked at a second cup on the Danforth when I was 17 because I well, I lied my way into that job, to be really honest. There's I mean, an art to that, though. There is a, there's an, an art, art to lying. Well, yeah. there's an art to, to promoting yourself. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it's a, it's a soft skill industry as well. Yes. You need to be personable. You need to have a smile on your face. You need to be good under pressure. And I don't smile at all, as you can tell. Oh, you're as right. anyone who knows me knows, I, I'm not a smiley. So Asia and I are, are across the table from each other. There's two giant microphones in our faces, but I can still see her giant grin it's every time you're mis- she's talking. because you can't see my eyes anymore. Um, so I went from being a barista to there was a place in the East End, which is now called Joy Bistro. I assume it still exists, which is bad that I don't know that. But it used to be called Joy of Java and was a coffee shop come restaurant uh, owned by Ted and Mary, this couple that live in that neighborhood. And I was living in Riverdale at the time. So as soon as I turned 18... I went down there, and I think my mom, that this is embarrassing, but true, probably talked them into it, but they hired me as a barista server, and I just did it. I just went for it, and I just tried as hard as I could, and I'm sure I made a million mistakes, I can only imagine. There is, as much as they say that this is uh, a learnable trade, and it is, there's a natural talent to it as well, I think, that gets uh, forgotten about when we are in such a technical phase of this job in terms of steps of service and cocktail bartending and all this stuff. We forget that there are people that are just good at it and there are people that aren't. 100%. Yeah. It's a hard find to meet people who have both the what you know and the who you know kind of combination. It's the personable attitude that you want to be greeted with, but then I want to be served properly Absolutely. as well. Well, I definitely wasn't serving properly, but I was the friendliest probably I've ever been was when I was 18. <laughs> Sometimes one can make up for the lacking of the other. It yeah, really I think, depends. you know, being a cute little 18 year old, I probably got away with a lot. But uh, so from there, I went to calendar on college, which is wow. A, That's yeah. a big jump. I was That's a, a big break. And I was a food runner, like server assistant. And then we moved up to bartending because that's how they do it there. Because back then, I mean, you're shaking Cosmos and you have four seats at the bar. So the serving job was really the epitome there. So I got to bartend there for a bit. And from there, the Rivoli and then just sort of went from there. And Rivoli is where I met a few people that really helped me moving forward in terms of connections and giving me opportunities. Like who? 
uh, Dave, Dave Mitten was where I met. I met Dave at the Rivoli. We both started around the same time. Uh, He's a big player today. He, yeah, kind of, right? Kind of. <laughs> um, and that's where I met him. And so he gave me a job at Chahovsky years later. And that's how I met the Drake people. And from there, everything kind of snowballed. And he's certainly who taught me how to make a proper drink. So what was the first drink he taught you? A Vesper. Please do tell. Just it's the James Bond cocktail. And it's supposed to be shaken, not stirred. But that's obviously not how anyone makes it because it is really supposed to be a stirred cocktail. But it's <sighs> gin and then vodka. And it's supposed to be Kina Lillet, which you can't get. So we use Lillet. But yeah, it's one of my favorites still. So you've worked at some places that have stayed popular for quite some time. What do you think attributes to their popularity being so consistent? I was lucky because I've been doing it for so long because I'm so old (laughs) that uh, (laughs) I worked at places that were the only places back then. Like when I was working at Chahosky, it was us. It was Habitat across the street, which is now Frank and Oak, which is now like a retail store. And the Drake was just opening. The Beaconsfield was just opening. And that was kind of it, right? Like, even Taroni, I think, was just half of what they are now. And then going further east, it was the Rivoli, Peter Pan, Black Bull. Le Select was still over there. Holy smokes. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you, Asia? I'm, I'm an old veteran of the industry. That's amazing. <laughs> so some, tell me some of your highlights. Because I even have a list here, and you haven't even named a few of them off the biography that I've done my research on. You well, you probably have the more recent ones. Okay. But those are places that I've managed. So after the, I, after Chahosky and, well, then I went to Swan, which is recently closed. Not in, in my notes. So yeah, this is all predating the Google search for sure. I moved to BC for a year, came back and started at the Drake. And I was at the Drake for about two and a half years. Man, I mean, I learned how to be a volume bartender. I already had my chops a bit from working where I'd worked, but the cocktails combined with the environment and who I got to work with, I got to work with Gord Hanna, who's one of the best bartenders in the city and one of my favorite people. So I'm a little biased, certainly, but he really is fantastic. And he really taught me about how to do the volume, but also give the hospitality at the same time, where you're remembering people's faces. And even if you can't remember their name, if you remember what they drink, they prefer that to their name, trust me. So if I'm like, kind of Stella shot a Jagger, they're in love with me, right? (laughs) But like taking the time to pay attention to who's at your bar three nights a week. Well, you clearly learned how to develop both sides of the hospitality and your skill sets over time. I think one of the biggest things I've learned as I've gotten older and certainly leaving the Drake to go into management, which is what you're probably the the resume you're aware of, um, taught me to lose the attitude (laughs) that I certainly had in my 20s and appreciate the guests that were filling your seats. Because again, as this industry grows and as the restaurant market saturates more and more, You better be thankful that that person's chosen your bar over the five others on the street that are just as good if, you know, like, you just, you have to appreciate the people sitting in your, in your seats. The regulars. And and not even just the regulars, even just the people that, you know, if I'm at college in Palmerston, I have five restaurants to choose from. If I'm choosing yours, appreciate it. There's three incredible restaurants in a row. You've got La Carnita, you've got Dilo Lopan, you've got Bar Raval. Whichever one of those any guest at any moment is choosing, they should be treated as though it's it really is their choice and they should be treated as such. Do you think that there is a stigma for bartenders where it is assumed that they cannot make a full 
time living serving drinks? Well, it's definitely a career. I don't know that there's a stigma we can't make a living. It's the longevity I'm personally concerned with in terms of like already, you know, my neck and my back and my my ankles and all those things hurt so much every day. So I think it's the longevity. There's a difference between certainly a server and a bartender and a male and a female. And there's a lot of different factors. There aren't a ton of 65-year-old bartenders in this city. That's kind of my point. Yeah. So in that sense, make a living, yes. Make a lifelong living is a different thing. It's doable. You just got to be really smart about it. How so? Um, You have to be really good with your money, which is really hard for us to do. There's a sort of a saying, the golden handcuffs of the front front of house where the cash every night that you're getting, you get really used to it and you get, you know, you go out. I mean, in my 20s, I was going out spending $300 on a pair of jeans knowing I was going to make it that night. That changes as you get older. You realize that that's not always the case. And yeah, savings. The fact that we make so little on paper makes, you know, buying a house really difficult if you don't have a partner. Um, That's such a good one, Asia. It's huge. It's huge. Great topic. I've just sort of written it off. (laughs) I've never, well, I mean, even as somebody who who kind of works enough in this city to consider themselves having a living, I'm never buying a house in this city. It's, well, that's a whole other side of it. I mean, there's the fact that- Bartending and jobs aside. Yeah, no, I mean, I could make- twice what I'm making and still be like, exactly. I'm not buying a bloody house yeah. in the city. I'd buy a cottage first, but any, that's just me. But Me I, too, Asia. Right? Live on a lake. Not but, this one. N- no. <laughs> one you can swim in, preferably. Whoa, good one. So what's the transition from a pre-65-year-old bartender? What happens when you're <laughs> like finding out you need to transition? What happens? What do you, what, I mean, is it a personal experience you're going through right now? Well, that's one of the reasons, I mean, I turned... It's so funny to me now, even just a few years later, but I turned 29 and panicked and and um, was bartending and was working three shifts a week and drinking and, and you know, working until four in the morning. And I knew that wasn't sustainable. It can be for a long period of time. I certainly ducked out before necessary, but um, which is why I went into management. And that's when Dave, again, um, connected me to Carlo Catalo, who was opening the County General with hey, Victor Berry. thanks, Dave. Yeah, so that was my transition and an attempt at like a quote-unquote real job within the industry that I understood. And that was certainly my motivation for being in management originally. And I liked setting up operations. I liked hiring and training and stuff for a certain period of time. But I was part of so many openings in a row that I got really burnt out. Openings of just multiple restaurants that you were working for? Yeah. At the I, same time? Or, not or at the same time. It was another. one after another. You know, I got kind of teased a bit, as a lot of us bartenders have in the past few years, about moving around a lot. But it was often just an opportunity would come up to open another place. And I was, you know, I like a challenge. But that will burn you out. It seems like it's part of the industry in Toronto, especially to jump around. It is now, but it didn't used to be. Like, I remember I used to stay at places for a year, and that still wasn't considered a long time. Now, it's like if you manage to stay somewhere for six months, everyone's sort of impressed. I think people are just trying to find their home. And I think that does play to the fact that we're looking at this as careers now. So we're less likely, or at least I should speak for myself, I'm less likely to stay at a job where I'm unhappy than I was when I was 24. Because... I'm thinking about it long term and I want to find that place that I work at for the next eight years and move up within and find growth in and uh, stay challenged within. So I'm certainly choosier than I used to be, which, yeah, meant I moved around a little bit. And I think that's what's happening a lot. As a young bartender, how hard is it to avoid drinking 
every shift. Well, technically, you're not supposed to drink on shift. <laughs> so there's a good start. Find a place that actually holds you to it. <laughs> but honestly, have fun. I, you know, I was just talking to someone about this, and I don't have any regrets about my 20s. I understand now looking back that I probably could have done it a little bit differently. But I'm in my 30s now, and I'm doing it differently now when it actually matters. And I'm glad that I didn't stay responsible through my 20s and then need to kind of unleash at 33 or 34 and make those mistakes now when it actually has a higher uh, risk factor. But no, have fun. Like, drink. Who cares? But, you know, don't do too many drugs and don't be a jerk about it and show up for work and don't call in hungover. And there's ways to do it responsibly. But I will never tell a 22-year-old not to party. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> so where does the party continue after 2 a.m.? Places it shouldn't. I'll just say that. <laughs> Nowhere we, good. <laughs> Nowhere good? With the wrong people? Oh, often the right people. But, okay. you know, I mean, I think a lot of people now have home bars, um, especially like cocktail stuff. So they're bringing people home to their house. But back when I was bartending, man, I mean, I was lucky to have a bottle of crappy wine at home. So I was going to booze cans and yeah. That was more of a thing, I think, back then. That's though. interesting that you mentioned that because it's very true. I think the bar has become sandwiched between the pre-drink and now the post-drink. Mm -hmm. You know, it's especially in the service industry, once the chefs are done and all the servers are done, it's finally time for them to kick back. And at that point, it's 2.30, mm -hmm. 3 a.m. You know, you're probably not necessarily working 8 a.m., 9 a.m. the next day. No, you're day. sleeping till noon. That's right. Yeah. Okay, I'm just trying, you to, can. I'm trying to be nice here. <laughs> no, no, it's absolutely true. And I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of like people with, you know, quote unquote normal jobs, nine to five jobs. And I'm like, you have from five until 10 every single day to socialize, to run your errands, to have a drink at a, on a patio after work. Like we don't have that luxury. We have those days off to do so. And I'm not saying it's uh, it's a worse life. I like my life, but certainly if you're finishing work at 2.30, you still need to unwind. And that's just the reality. I remember, you know, anytime I've gone home straight after work, I'm still up for three hours. I may not be at a bar or a booze can or someone's house, but I'm still up. I'm wired. I just finished work. Like, imagine going to sleep at 5.30 in the evening. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm a night hawk, and I've worked in... Well, the, yeah, in, you're in, obviously in, in a bit of a different position, but... No, absolutely. But I've worked in food and beverage. I know what it's like to get off the clock, but I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm, I'm done drinking. I'm going to Chinatown or Koreatown. That's, that's, <laughs> there is that as well. Right? I yeah. mean, I'm sure your nights have ended plenty of them. Yeah, sneakities. Sneakities, nachos um, have been a big part of my life since King's I was about Crown. 18. I do the plain sausage cheese uh, exercise side of guac. That's sort of what I do. But yes, the King's Crown. I mean, that's one of the things I like about my job right now. And this is one of the things I've worked towards is not working till 2 a.m. anymore. So that uh, I can go to snack bar and have steak tartare instead of, you know, Kung Pao on uh, Spadina. But... Not to say there's anything wrong with that, but that's... It gets tiring over time. That's the lifestyle I've changed into, and there's a reason I've chosen that for sure. All right, let's get to this more technical discussion here. Sure. I need to know the difference, because you clearly have been in the industry for 15, 20 years almost. 15. Okay. God, <laughs> yes, 15. The term mixologist. Oh, well... What do you, what do you think of when you hear mixologist and or mixology mm -hmm. and you know is there a, a cutthroat difference between a bartender and a mixologist 
Can, there, you, can they not be the same thing? There shouldn't be. I think mixology is something that's very real and you can't argue the art of mixology. I have always considered myself more of a bartender simply because I don't have the skill set and knowledge that a lot of the bartenders I know that I would consider mixologists, whether or not they like it, uh, have, you know, there's girls and guys behind those bars that know more about vermouth than I know about pretty much anything. So <laughs> that's a different class of bartender. And there is a mixology to it. I mean, I can make you a great old fashioned and I can cobble together a cocktail list that sells, but they're on a different scale than, than I am. And I will, I've always said that, you know, I've sort of fell into the mixology aspect of the job and I was lucky. I, I really enjoyed it and I'd been doing this long enough that I could kind of find my way. And I was surrounded by people like Dave and like Christina Kuypers and and Sandy Delmeda and so many other people that were inspiring that I could look to for advice and knowledge and would take the time to teach me things. So I was very lucky in that sense. But that is, mixology specifically isn't where my passion lies. Is there a difference between a mixologist and a bartender? I don't think so. I think that anyone could be either. Like, you know, you, it's interchangeable. I just think some people don't have the interest in the mixology aspect of bartending. What are some of the more exciting trends of the last let's say two decades that you've seen because, you know, your entrance into the industry, you were a barista mm -hmm. turned bartender turned, can we say mixologist? Sure. Can, and then now <laughs> you're managing them. Well, I was, yeah. yeah but well, you're back on, on, on the, on the fleet now. Yeah. I'm, I'm back as part of the, the cavalry as opposed to, I'm no general anymore, which I'm enjoying. Yeah. I think that the most interesting evolution has been, um, in terms of the trends in the sense that, you know, I really enjoy the local food movement that's happened and the fact that people care more about where their food is coming from. I don't miss the chicken Caesar wrap phenomenon of the <laughs> late 90s and early 2000s. Asia, you are hilarious because <laughs> you're speaking my language. That is, it, I wouldn't, I would definitely. They're delicious. They're, you know, listen, who doesn't like salad dressing? On beer rail, I want a chicken Caesar wrap. Beer battered but... <laughs> chicken with a wrap. I get it, right? It all makes sense to me in my head. But every restaurant doesn't need to have pad thai. And like every restaurant doesn't need to have a Caesar salad and every restaurant doesn't need to have anything. And the unique, the fact that, but the thing is, back again, back then, there were only a handful of restaurants, comparably speaking, to now. So now every restaurant can specialize because there's a million of them. And I'm really enjoying, you know, if I, whatever I feel like that night dictates what restaurant I go to. That didn't used to be the case. Never. No. But you can also really attribute that to the fact that we're in a metropolitan city. Where we you were in a metropolitan city 10 years ago, and it was still not as accessible. But I'm just saying, then... There was limited choices because the trends kind of were being dictated by New York. True. I think these, you know, there's still aspects of influence from New York, Chicago, London, Paris, etc. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that one of the good things that's happened in Toronto is that we've started to identify as our own city instead of trying to be another city. Couldn't agree with you more. And that's where I say we are now. Yeah. Agreed. And that's why we have this ability to... Do I want to go to a Jamie Kennedy restaurant? Do I want to go to Koreatown? Oh, Jamie Kennedy's food. Yeah, well, I miss wine yeah. bars so much. Like the old one. Oh, in the East End, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, we had Ivy here talking about her interactions with Jamie. They're, they're pretty close in their mm -hmm. works, and I've heard some great stories. Uh, I personally have never dined at any of his restaurants, but now that it, it's chefs like Jamie that might as well continue this conversation with him, it's giving Toronto a voice. Yes. Which we didn't have 10 years ago. No, you're we, right. He made a huge difference. Him amongst others. And Susser and a few That's others. Right. 
Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that they were sort of the firsts to that him and to it and Susser and say what you want about all of them. And everyone has their opinions. That's for sure. Cause they're all such superstars and legends in their own right for different reasons. But the reality is like they were the, some of the, some of the first to have uh, restaurants with their own names on them uh, owned by themselves. Uh, they were some of the first sort of the idea of a celebrity bartender or sorry, chef, um, they were some of the first, for better or worse. And now that paved the way for the Nick Lou's, the Query Vitiello's, et cetera. So um, the great Ram Gamerons. I mean, I don't, I think that would have happened in this city anyway. I think it needed to happen. We were bursting at the seams. But certainly these, those men paved the way, for sure. You have such an amazing opinion and voice on this. <laughs> How is it writing for Swallow Daily? How is it now you're, you're almost kind of turning the you know, tables around, no pun intended. Okay, pun intended. No, that was a good, that was a good pun. Thank I'll you. take it. I love puns. Good. You know, you're now a journalist. Oh, gosh. You uh, are. <laughs> but you're, you, and I got to tell you, Asia, I appreciate your opinion. In the first 20 minutes just here now, I would continue to read and listen to you speak based on how you're interacting with me. You're very normal about it. <laughs> you're not offensive. You're, you're very good about trying not to hurt anybody's feelings. But at the same time, you're an opinionated journalist. How do you approach this spectrum. This was really exciting thing for me. And I thank God for Ivy Knight. I swear to God, the fact that she gave me and the, even the first opportunity to write about uh, Andrew Johnston and do the, the, the music thing that I did, that one uh, interview, and then to do Swish, and then to listen to my pitch on this and be interested in it at all. Um, I just have to say right now, thank you, Ivy. <laughs> but basically what happened was I started being really interested, as I was saying, about my future and what I was going to be doing at 60. And I started sort of asking the people I knew what they – I sort of asked the questions that I asked Megan. And the answers I was getting back, I was originally going to relay into sort of an essay thing that I was going to pitch to Munchies or Vice or something like that or just to Ivy in some way. But I realized there was a different story here, which is that there's this huge demographic – of bartenders and servers and bussers and hosts and maitre d's and managers that this is what we do. And whether or not we intended this to be our career, it is our career. Whether we realized it was something we were so passionate about, it is now. And what we kind of, how we ended up here, um, how we deal with being here and what we plan on doing about it just became really interesting to me. So you mentioned Swish. Mm -hmm. And my connection to Swish is we've had Crystal Luxmore oh, yeah. on the show. I'm a huge fan of Crystal. She's I don't great. I don't really like beer and she knows that. And she and I discussed beer in you know for someone who's just not a, an appreciator of such a fine drink which has been really be grown into itself with the whole craft industry and the independent really brewers. Yeah. She's really on the forefront here in, in Toronto. So Swish, you're going to have to tell us about it because you mentioned it. Again, it's another article you can read about at SwallowDaily.com. I, I have to say this because it's an amazing acronym. Spirited women in wine, suds, and hooch. But the wine is in brackets. So it's spirited women in suds and hooch. That is amazing, and I, I want to join, even though I can't. It's not that you can't. It's that, you know, there's always... I'm not, I'm not spirited woman enough. I, I hate I to break it to you. I believe in you. At the time that Swish came out, um, I didn't have the time to be um, in a, a real part of it. Um, unfortunately, I was running restaurants and just running myself ragged. But Christine Sismondo and Sarah Parniak are both incredible women and really good friends of mine. I'm lucky enough to call them my friends, and they are obviously a huge part of it. I think that at the risk of getting too political here, 
the restaurant industry can be a bit of a boys club. And I think that, you know, just like in grade seven math class, the girls aren't raising their hands as much as the boys just because the boys are louder. So I think it was really nice to have a female centric environment to talk about the things that we are equally passionate about that we care about and finding different ways to give the female population within the industry more of a voice also the coolest chicks are in the food and beverage industry i have well like all of them are amazing and i'm lucky enough to consider many of them good friends of mine and i always say like every restaurant i've ever worked at i've like collected a friend (laughs) and then and yeah i mean the women in this industry are amazing and smart and funny and interesting and gorgeous and talented and it's just it's an incredible resource to have these people around uh, just in, in fear of, of, of getting too political, why do you think the food and beverage industry is the last or one of the last of the male-dominated dominated forums? To be fair, I don't think it's one of the last male-dominated. I mean, like, let's talk about the Supreme Court first. But I just think that right now, because the food and beverage industry is so prominent, we're just hearing about it. Um, certainly when I started doing the cocktail stuff, I was one of five girls and I was not even one of the first but you know I was doing cocktail competitions it was me or Megan Jones or it was me and Chanel or me and Sarah Parnick and that was it Renata is one of the original girls doing it now there's six women in every single competition and it's fantastic but it took time now about these amazing women or just bartenders in general do you find that when a woman is behind the bar it's a different experience altogether than say if it was a man behind I mean, I'm trying not to draw. I'm trying to be careful. I'm trying to be careful too. It's not that I'm trying to be political, but when I go to and a I'm bar... I'm trying to be politically correct, I but I have, believe me, I have. I can talk I'm, about this. Can you but. just explain what what are the, the, the real difference? Because I personally, just as a man who appre- I was raised by women, you know, I've been surrounded by women my entire life. A female touch compared to a man's touch is the comparison of saying a boy is louder and a girl is not as loud. But it's, well, other than me and a couple others, that's, that is true. <laughs> I mean, okay. I'm very loud, so I am an exception. But coming up when I did, I felt the need to be one of the boys. I felt the need to keep up with them in shots and t- make the same raunchy jokes. And I think that they're... I don't want to say generation because they're like four years younger than me, but this next wave, let's say, of female bartenders (laughs) get to be a little softer and still hardcore at the same time. And and I mean, I really did. I felt like I really had to like man up, so to speak. And I'm enjoying the fact that they're embracing the softer touch of being a female behind the bar. And it's just different. The hospitality is different. The attention to detail is different. I'm not saying one is better than the other because they're really not. There's there's, different skill sets. There's just different skill sets, yeah. But... I remember walking into a restaurant, and I'm not going to name it, so it doesn't matter, but I remember walking into a restaurant, and it happened to be all women working when it normally wasn't, and it was a completely different experience. It was lighter, it was airier, the music that was on was different, everything about it was different, and not because I'm a feminist, but because I'm a human, I enjoy a warmer work environment and a warmer restaurant environment, so I preferred it that night to generally. And because of previous, let's say, decades of gender roles... It's so easy for men and women to be segregated in different ways. I mean, you go to a sports bar. When yes. do you ever see a male server? You know, and that's that's absolutely true. I mean, I w- was a bartender at Calendar, but that was very rare. And it, back in those days, certainly it was often a male bartender and female servers. Um, there, of course, are always exceptions. And 
no one shout at me or anything. But well, uh, skill in the end will set you free. You got that skill. Doesn't matter, man, woman. Yes. That's going to shine. And I think that's what the city is finally re- recognizing. I think so, too. And I just think that, you know, and there are more women in charge and there's more women that are just out there and, and living it up and really showing their their weight. I mean, the speed rack competition that was recently in Vancouver, it's which is an all-female competition, but like the top two are from Toronto and they're good friends of mine and they kick ass and it doesn't matter that they're women, but it does. There's a different set of, of skills. There just are. Also, there's just been many years of people thinking differently. Yes. Thinking more gender-specific. And it takes these amazing women to really show their stuff to prove not that they can or that they're better, but that they're there. Yes, being visible. And that's, and that's my point. That's huge. I, I agree. I think, you know, not there's nothing wrong with any position, but I think because we're in a, an environment right now where the bar is getting so much attention, you know, being a visible female bartender versus just, you know, one of the the big boobed blondes um, to surround the like talented male mixologist, which used to be the case quite often at places I've worked at. I think that's really important. And what's happening is that people are getting equal airtime, people are getting equal attention, and, and it's incredible to watch the transition. Let's get away from yes, these gender I'm gonna politics. Get so much I'm, I'm sorry. I <laughs> no, know. no, it's, I'm really not. Believe me, you're, everyone you're I know not, knows you've I been have amazing. These well, but even, even more so the fact that you are a woman, you know, even having a food podcast, I talk to a lot of male chefs. A lot of male kitchen yeah. managers, you know, a lot of males. Thank you, Ivy Knight, because without her, I wouldn't have this reach to some extraordinary women. And I know this this podcast is going to be called Thank You, Ivy Knight, but still. <laughs> she deserves it. She really does. <laughs> All right. Let's, man or woman. Yes. What are the easiest mistakes for a bartender to make? Uh, or even the bar no, itself, that's... because let's be honest, this industry in a metropolitan city, the fail rate is 70%. I think that a bartender can make the same mistake a DJ can, which Ooh. is making it about themselves. Okay. I think that's number one, you know, making the drink they want to make, building the environment they want to work in, as opposed to looking outside themselves and doing what the guest wants. And if the guest wants a Cosmo, make them a Cosmo. Make them a Cosmo. I don't get it, man. <laughs> I go to some sort of establishment and I'm treated like shit. Because they think it's okay to do that. It's like the stores in Yorkville. <laughs> it's like Pretty Woman, okay? <laughs> you know, like you never know whose credit card these people are holding. I'm half kidding. I really am only half kidding. <laughs> um, but like the reality is, is, you know, like I said, going back to being genuinely grateful for people gracing your establishment with their presence and yes educating the guests and expanding their mind that's all important but ultimately if someone says they want something light and fruity you don't make them a scotch old-fashioned like you can but be prepared to also make them what they actually want you know what i mean and and that's a dialogue you can have with your guest but I've worked in so many clubs where like the DJ's playing for themselves and no one's dancing and i'm like look around and i feel that way about chefs and bartenders, all of us, like we're in an industry where we're reliant on people caring about what we're doing. So we better care about what they want. Asia, you're going to have to come back. <laughs> we're, we're probably going to have to bring Ivy with you. <laughs> oh, we're God. Have to do, we're, we might even do like a, a, a four person round table. That would be fun. And we'll, you'll have to bring a, a third person. I'm going to end this with some lightning round questions for okay. you. Okay. Oh, gosh. I know. Ready? Yes. Where to after the bar closes food wise? Snack bar. Even after 2 a.m.? 
Oh, after 2 a.m.? If I can't do Sneaky D's, then I'm probably doing really crappy hot dogs at the 7-Eleven next to my house. And you and Jesse Valens would get along for that <laughs> one from the Saint Tavern. He loves his uh, post-shift post, post hot dogs. Best drink and food combo ever. Like items or yeah. place? Or place, sure. Um, I really like a good steak frite with an old-fashioned. And I do that most often at TTS. What's CTS? Toronto Temperance Society above, above oh, Sidecar. I know. That's where my snobbery comes yeah, in. But best old-fashioned and really great steak frites. And that, that's my, probably my favorite combo. Outside of Toronto, where are the best bartenders in the world? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I know you're saying this is a lightning round, but the reality is I can't speak to that. I tend to go to beaches on vacations. But uh, I was in Paris, lucky enough to be taken to Paris. And at uh, Prescription was probably my favorite um, bartender. Jan. Favorite mocktail? Anna Walkowski at Bar Raval makes some of the best alcohol-free drinks I've ever had. Now, you've spent a good part of your teenage years in California. <laughs> Bloody Mary or the Caesar? Neither. Whoa. <laughs> I hate both of them. <laughs> and last but not least, beer before liquor? No, I don't drink beer. <laughs> okay, there we go. Just all of the liquor. <laughs> Asia Sachs, you can see her on swallowdaily.com. Asia, it's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you for you. having me. This that has was been fun. A, oh, thank you so much. I've, I've had more fun, trust me. <laughs> this has been Alex Ross on Speaking Duck on the Never Sleeps Network. Thank you, Asia. Thank you. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 